This is Her Deepest Ecologies, the podcast. I am your host, Jessica Gigo. We are at a turning point on this planet and in this country. In conversation with a wide range of artists, makers, creators, and caretakers, this podcast takes on two fundamental and interconnected questions. How do we care for ourselves and each other? How do we nurture the earth? Let's find out what these luminaries have to say. In this episode, I talk with Anne Stinson, a fellow Oregon State University press mate, about her beautiful memoir, The Ground at My Feet, Sustaining a Family and a Farm. Anne is the incoming president of the Family Forest Foundation. She grew up on the Cowlitz Ridge tree farm just outside of Toledo, Washington. After high school, her interest took her to several places, including Japan and New York City. She worked for a public policy nonprofit, the Century Foundation in New York, and then taught middle school and high school in New York City and later for the Park Rose School District in Portland, Oregon. She splits her time between Portland, where she lives with her husband, Tom, and Toledo, where she is a managing partner of the Cowlitz Ridge Tree Farm, LLC. The farm is located on a ridge above the Cowlitz River in southwest Washington. It's about halfway between Chehalis and Longview, or Stavlin, Portland, depending on how much you know your little towns. And my mom and dad bought it in 1971, and they bought it from um, Elmer and Dorothy Boone. Um, and they had it had been in their family since about 1910. Um, and before that, it had a bunch of different, it got passed through a bunch of hands. The very first people um, who had a U.S. deed for the land um, was a couple named Edgar and Esther Willoughby. And they only owned it for a few years. Um, but I did find out a lot about them, and I wrote about them in the book. Um, and before that, it um, was nurtured by the Callas tribe. They're the first humans to um, use use the land there. So, yeah. Hmm. And the, the subtitle to the book is Sustaining a Family and a Forest. So how does your relationship with family influence your um, relationship to the farm? Well, I mean, I grew up there. So I was nine when we moved there. Um, so it's always been um, part of my history. I left at 18, um, lived in cities <laughs> for a long time. I love the city, and I'm a humanities person. All my brothers, my brother and sister, both have uh, forestry degrees. My dad's a forester, um, but so, um, but now I'm there, um, and I, I don't think I would be in forestry at all if it weren't for my family. Right? I mean, I came back to the tree farm. Um, after my brother passed away um, and um, and it's definitely the people that keep me there though I am developing my own relationship with the land and the trees and the the birds and the the critters that are out there so it definitely it is def it's, it's intertwined there's no separating them hmm. yeah a lot of what you talk about in the book or at least how the book is started is talking about your brother Peter, is that right? Stephen. Stephen, sorry. About your brother Stephen. Um, and just sort of reflecting on 
his tenure of taking care of the farm. And one of the questions that you ask early on in the book um, that I found really moving was um, asking if the land remembered his Uh, love. Yes. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I think after, I mean, when, I don't know if everybody feels this way, but after you are out in the woods for any, you know, if you're spending your hours and days out there, the supposedly inanimate things feel animate. <laughs> um, and so you, you, you feel like they're listening and, um, and paying attention and holding the stories of, of us humans. And so, you know, do they, do they know my brother? I, I think so. Yeah. And so how long after you moved back to the farm did you start writing about it? Well, so I mean, moving, the back of the book makes it sound like I, um, you know, left the city and moved back to the tree farm. I split my time between Portland and Toledo. um, And um, so I started writing about my brother um, and his illness and, and passing um, in 2012, so about two years before he passed. Um, I went to a, uh, a uh, camp with my mom. She is a ceramic artist, and um, so I wanted to go with her to this week-long art camp on the Columbia called, it's at Manuka, is part of the creative arts community in Portland. And um, they always have a writing class, which is good because I'm not a visual artist. Um, and so I started writing there. And some of the things that I wrote there are in the book. Um, but um, af- after Steve passed, I started writing more seriously about the tree farm. And it was a way for me to uh, learn, too, because, like I said, I'm not a forester. So it gave me an excuse to ask everyone a thousand questions, you know, the planters, the tree, the, the loggers, my dad, you know, whoever. I just had my notebook out at all times in it so I could ask. Um, and then I got interested in the history uh, of the farm and then also interested in what happens to our wood when it leaves the the tree farm and that took me on all sorts of adventures so yeah I love that and I love that um you have such a creative family like there's even a, a poem that your brother wrote I think that's early uh, on no, the logger uh. but yeah Peter that's what you're that's oh, why okay, you're that's, thinking yeah, Peter. Yeah. yeah 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 so yeah no Peter and Peter his son um were the loggers that we hired to cut the piece of property that is the center of the book um so yeah so that was interesting um the 12 acres that the book focuses on um the trees were older than industry standard at the moment which is like 40 years old um so they were were too big they were um for the feller buncher the big machine that comes through and kind of mows down the trees um and so uh we hired a a logger who can still do hand logging with his chainsaw um that was peter yeah so that i want to get back to talking about the book but i would love to talk a little bit just about forestry and logging Mm. because it's such a integral part of Washington's history, at least the last little bit of our (laughs) history. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so I guess I'm just wondering, you know, 
Can you talk a little bit about your family's practices and maybe how they're different than larger um, forestry right. practices? Yeah. And, and also kind of what are some of the major misconceptions about forestry mm. in general? Mm-hmm. I know that's a big question. But no, it is. <laughs> it's okay. I think about it all the time. Yeah. Um, so actually, recently there was a, a article in The New Yorker about... Um, Forest. It's a big topic. It's a hot topic at the moment, trees and forests. I think partly because they're burning down and everybody is realizing that. But there's been a lot of books um, recently. The Mother Tree. Um, That's um, Susan Sitzen's, Sim- yeah. Simard. Yeah. yeah. And then another one. Um, it's a German guy. Um, anyway, I can't remember. But... Um, and then Richard Powers, the overstory, and I, I love him. He's one of my favorite authors ever. And then when I heard he was reading, writing a book about trees, I was like, oh, my God. Um, but none of those books talk about um, family forests. And family forests owners um, own 35% of the forests in America. Um, so it's a huge percentage. It's not as big in Washington State because we have such so much public land. Um, but so people, when they think of forests, they think of either the um, public land, you know, national forests, or they think of warehouser, um, industrial land. But family forests um, are uh, a big part, and I think family forests have a lot to teach um, people, not just people who don't know anything about forests, but the industrial landowners and the public landowners, which is us but anyway um because family of forest owners we we're with the trees every day right we we live with them and um so and also often our land is smaller so we can care um more intensively and 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 practice things that you know sort of do experiments (laughs) um it's like one of the things that we're doing now is planting lots of different kinds of species to see what will um, be resilient with our climate change. Mm. Um, so there's a need for sort of changing. Oh, the yeah. I mean, the western red cedar is having a huge dieback, um, and the Douglas fir is struggling because of a fungus in the ground. And uh, you know, uh, there's all the, the fungus in the ground, and there's also this thing called Phomopsis, which is a bacteria that flies around in the air. All those things have been around forever, but with decreased rainfall, the trees are stressed out already, and then these things um, mm. really take over. So it's not just heat stress. It's actually like a uh, confounding issues of the, the heat exactly. stress plus the microbial activity right. actually being enhanced by the warmer temperatures or lack of rainfall. Yeah, it's just like our own bodies, right? When we're yeah. stressed out, every bug that comes by, we get. Hmm. Um, and the, the trees are stressed because they don't have enough water. It's like right now our tree farm, my dad religiously keeps track of the water. I mean, and it's a conversation topic every day. Um, we've had not even 20 inches of rain this year, and the average in the last, I'm going to get this wrong, um, 20 years has been like 40 inches, but in the, before that, um, we had like over 50 inches of rain a year. So we're just way behind, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's tragic. I mean, it's just, it's just really hard to see the trees struggling yeah I mean this is technically I know right before we had a big rain this summer they declared that we're officially in a drought oh yeah in Washington yes yeah yes no definite drought 
Um, so we have been planting incense <laughs> cedar <laughs> instead of western red cedar, and it is more drought resistant. Um, it also has the added benefit that the, the deer don't like it. All the western red cedar that we've planted, we've had to um, tube, put these Vexar tube, plastic tubes on them, biodegradable plastic, and the tubes have to be um, uh, adjusted every you know, three or four months. So it's a massive amount of work. I mean, these are thousands and thousands and thousands of tubes. Um, so that is maybe not such a bad switch. <coughs> um, and then the Douglas fir, because of the fungus in the ground, um, we've been planting pine. Um, and it's interesting. We, we always think that pine is a east side um, tree, but um, both the Willamette, Willamette Valley pine is native to the Willamette Valley, and then also there we've found some Willamette Valley pine up near um, Fort Lewis. Um, so some of the very first sawmills actually on the west side um, of the Cascades um, cut pine. Um, so that's and then we've also planted uh, a western white pine, so ponderosa pine and western white pine. Hmm. Um, Gosh, I'm still kind of stuck on, you know, the western red cedar is mm. such an iconic uh -huh. species. And so that that's interesting, though, that at, as a forest farm, you're moving away from. Right. Well, hardly anybody plants western red cedar because it's so much work to keep it alive from the deer. The deer, the deer will eat any tree, like, you know, nip at it. But it just munches the western red cedar to a nub I mean, it completely kills it so people are really in, i mean no industrial forest is planting cedar you will if you see a cedar planted you know it's a family forester there's <laughs> just no way because it just takes so much work um but that's that's one of the reasons that i think we really need to um make policies that support family forests um and often that that's not the case you said there's 35% of foresters are family forests in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, what is that percentage in Washington? 14. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so the other companies are, is that warehouses? Well, so I'm, I'm including all of forest land completely. So um, the national forests, state forests, county forests, um, tribal lands, um, and then the industrial forests, which are like Warehouser and Port Blakely, Green Diamond. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to remember Rainier. those company names. Right. I, I yeah. always think just warehouser. I yeah. Guess, but. Yeah. Yeah. Port Blakely is big, and they're they're a very they're a family owned company, um, and they do a really good job of stewarding the land. And are yeah. are there some private family foresters that manage state lands like DNR lands, or is that all state managed? It's all state, state managed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's private. It's all privately owned land and warehouser. I mean, they, they are harvesting from lands that are one is forests that they own. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, the DNR can put up uh, some sales and then companies come in and do the actual logging, uh, but they have their own foresters who manage the land. Yeah. Okay. And that is that an income stream for the state? Yes, it okay. is. And actually, that's a big question right now. There's a big fight. Um, there's some people calling um, some of the DNR lands um, legacy forests. So they're second growth or even third growth forests. So they're not old growth forests, um, but they're over a hundred years old um, and they don't want it cut down. And they want, um, so the, I mean, it's a huge in battle in Whatcom County. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, um, but um, 
yeah, no, it's a big income stream for the state of Washington. Um, and some people are saying those trees should never be cut, hmm. um, even though, you know, they will grow again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, because that's interesting because I'm thinking about, you know, just I work in agriculture and the sort of um, spectrum of sustainable farming from the small farmers to the larger farms that um, that use sustainable practices or at least like to say that they do. Right. But, you know, the question is how well do those sustainable practices actually work at a large scale, mm -hmm. right? Like you can say you're using compost if you're farming a 500-acre piece of ground, but are you actually getting the organic matter retention and buildup that, you know, is ultimately the goal of using compost, right? Mm -hmm. Or are you still just extractive mm -hmm. in terms of how you're farming and, and harvesting crops and taking nutrients out of the right. out of the land? And so I guess, you know, the term like selective logging, mm -hmm. um, you know, versus clear cutting, right. could you kind of explain, just describe your practices on your farm sure. and, and, and are those used at a larger scale or can they only be used at a small scale? That's a good question. Um, we don't selective harvest. We do clear cut, um, but our clear cuts are five acres or eight acres. They're not, you know, a hundred. <laughs> we don't want, we have 300 acres. Um, so um, selective harvesting, I, I think that we do it often because we think clear cuts are ugly. Um, and I think that we need to change our view of beauty. <laughs> um, I, I brought um, some friends from Portland to the tree farm the other day, and there were, we, my friend has a five-year-old and a, and a two-year-old, and I took them out to our most recent five-acre clear cut because there were a bunch of great puddles to splash around in. But I was also curious to see what their response would be, the kids, you know. So I brought the two little girls out, and the five-year-old stopped, and she's like, it's a city of sticks. And I was like, what a great response. You know, she doesn't know she's supposed to hate it, right? Um, and a clear cut, you know, so I mean, it is the, in the first six months, you're like, wow, that's, that's destruction, you know, that's devastation. But in the spring, there's 50 different things blooming. I mean, it, it becomes beautiful really quickly. And if you can train your eye to see it, you can see the baby trees growing really quickly too. Um, so I, I think, and I think part of the problem with um, clear cuts or any cutting of any trees or even, you know, the killing of an animal to eat, we, uh, are, we are so separated from the cycles of life and death as a modern society that we just don't, we don't know how to deal with it. We've forgotten that things need to die in order for us to, to flourish. Um, that's not to say we just keep killing and killing and killing. I think, um, you know, we need to honor the things, say thank you. We need to um, participate um, in a healthy way with the destruction. Um, but we can't not put, to say that we're not part of the destruction is, is dishonest, right? We need to actively uh, acknowledge it and, and say thank you and go on. <laughs> mm. um, I don't not go on is not the right the word, but we need to acknowledge our part in it and um, celebrate it. And so the selective, selective harvest, um, some people are doing it and go for it. <laughs> um, and, and, and what it means is, you know, you're, you're just taking a few of the trees 
And then you come back and you take more of the trees and then you come back and you take more of the trees. But every time you come back, you have the potential of damaging the trees that are already there. It's very difficult to mm. fall the trees and not hurt the trees that are already there. Um, and also, every time you come back, you're bringing your big machinery out there and running over the ground again. Um, so I don't, I'm not quite sure in the end how much better it is for the um, land. I'm sure that I could get in huge arguments with people about that. Um, but I, and I don't know all the answers. But um, I do wonder how much of this idea of selective harvesting is because we think clear cuts are ugly. Hmm. And I think ugly and beautiful are so subjective. Yeah, well, right? I was just, I'm thinking about a line from your book, um, and I can't remember, it was you. Were, I think it might have been something your brother said, um, but about, you know, Seattle is Washington's biggest clear cut, <laughs> yes. and Portland is Oregon's biggest clear yeah. cut, and the difference is that in your clear cuts, things grow back, Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. No, I just heard that I went to a tree farm tour last week, and a neighbor of the... Um, family forester that we were visiting had um, ha applied for a logging permit uh, a couple years ago and the HOA of this huge big development next to him um, appealed his permit which I didn't even know it was possible but they did and the DNR helped him fight it and he was able to to per, you know continue um, and then so dad and I drove through that development on our way out there's not a tree standing. I mean, they didn't leave any mm -hmm. legacy trees, you know? And these are big, you know, McMansion houses. Um, and it's just so hypocritical, you know? They didn't want their view <laughs> destroyed. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're, I don't know how many acres that development was. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's a misconception. And we need to help each other understand yeah, actually, that reminds me of my childhood because I grew up in a like a suburban development, and I think they tried to leave some token, mm -hmm. you know, large hemlocks right. and red cedars. And there was always whenever there was a November windstorm, that yeah, there was like yeah. several houses that got that lone tree, yes. and then it immediately called the arborist, and the tree was gone. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing; they're kind of vulnerable when they're left Very much alone. So. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's really interesting to me, um, just because I think about this a lot in agriculture, how, you know, I had definitely had, you know, my views of what I thought was beautiful or, you know, right in agriculture. And, you know, if you go down to like sort of the extremes of, of sustainable uh, farming and food growing, you know, like if you're talking about like permaculture, you know, everyone's talking about planting in a circle and, you know, really trying to honor nature in that way. You know, but then if you're really trying to grow crops and irrigate them and weed them, like lines make a lot of sense, right? right. Like, right. you can't really, you know, weed a circle. You can't get a piece of equipment to go in a circle. Right. And so I've just really kind of learned over the last 20 years that, you know, a lot of the ways that we farm are, you know, built out of practicality and right. efficiency. And mm -hmm. even though some of those are, you know, harder on nature than what we would ideally like to do and I think that struggle between like the practical and real and the ideal is very hard for farmers I think people that farm have to make a lot of sacrifices that they don't want to make mm -hmm. but they're still in relationship to the land right and so I think it's hard when you're actually not having to do that work every day or make a living doing that right. work every day yes to not um 
you know, to, I mean, that, 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 that people don't have a right to an opinion. But no, I don't know how they you, need to yeah. have an informed opinion. And I also think that there's a, there's a, uh, a looking down upon from the city folk to the rural folk. Um, and people, they don't trust the farmers to know. Um, and I don't know if it's worse than it used to be, but, you know, MAGA hats don't help. <laughs> um, but listen to the people who are on the land. They they know what they're doing, um, and they've been doing it for a very long time. And, you know, ask questions of the people who've been doing it before, you know, the city folks um, start, you know, create their opinions. I mean, I think there's a little some hubris, um, and there's a need to listen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how much um, pesticide usage comes up in forestry. I know in agriculture, you know, in our farm, you know, we we don't really need it for the, the sheep and the types of crops that we grow. Um, and then we have a lot of compost from the sheep. And so we're not technically organically certified anymore, but we do use those practices. But when I see the larger family farms that are doing like raspberries or potatoes, and as someone who has a history of studying right. all the things, right. all Potato. the diseases that can kill <laughs> potatoes and raspberries, right. it is just hard. I mean, it's very hard. And so some of those chemical tools that have come around, even though they're coming from private companies, I mean, they actually make make it possible to have those foods on a regular basis. Yes. And um, so I've, you know, my perception of pesticides has uh, kind of evolved. I mean, I don't love to eat anything that was grown with pesticides, but at the same time, like... I want farmers to be in business and right. I want to buy products and you and you do want a certain quality of product. And right. so I'm curious, like chemical usage, is there a conversation around that in forestry? We don't, p pesticides, no, but herbicides, yes. So um, many, I mean, especially all industrial companies um, use um, herbicides to, so once uh, a land is logged, um, people, um, use an herbicide to suppress the weed growth so that the trees have a chance um, to get up above the weeds. Um, we have done that in the past, but we're trying not to do it as much now. And we're trying to, instead of doing that, leaving more slash on the ground, so more of the branches, more of the tops of the trees um, to keep that out. And another benefit to that, it, it keep it's harder for the deer to walk. The deer are lazy like us and don't want to mm. try to trip over all those things. Um, but that's an experiment. We're not sure yet if that is going to work. Um, but, you know, that's once. Once in 40, 50, 60 years, um, the land is being sprayed with herbicide. Um, so it's not, a, it's just not a, a big topic. Um, but, and some people also do a I can't remember what they call it, but like once the trees are up, they'll go around with a backpack sprayer and spray around each tree to keep the mm -hmm. the brush from from getting up. Um, so, but it still is not very much in the lifespan of a tree. It's used in moderation, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, just because trees takes, I mean, once they're above the brush, they don't need anything mm -hmm. at all, and so that's 30, 40 years of of free to grow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and one thing I, I actually, I, I didn't um, include this on this list, but it's just coming to me now. Um, I'm wondering about, you know, fire ecology is, um, forgive my pun, such a hot topic in Washington yes, right now. huge. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of the decisions of clear cutting versus selective logging and, and, the, and managing underbrush, um, how, I mean, that's probably something you've 
you know, you've planned for, for a while on your farm, the reality of, of fire yeah. and, and how that can affect trees or um, have you, do you use fire as a management tool? No, we don't. I think um, that is a big uh, question on the east side more. So they're, they're trying to, um, you know, burn the understory to keep the, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if prescribed fire will become a thing on the west side or not. That's a good question. I should know that, but I don't. Hmm. Um, yeah. No, we just mostly <laughs> pray that the fire doesn't come. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're happening in surprising places. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, we have our, our big 300 gallon water tank on a trailer <laughs> and yeah. some backpack sprayers with water yeah. that we keep out but yeah so, mm. so um I want to talk a little bit about your role I mean you're in a leadership role with your farm and what you know what is the role of women in forestry in Washington or nationally or how has that uh, experience been as a woman in mm -hmm. forestry it's interesting because um so I'm the president of the Washington Farm Forestry Association. Um, that's a new position for me. I, it just started in May. Um, and it's it's a volunteer position. Um, the executive director is a woman, and she's been there for 10 years, Elaine O'Neill. Um, so it feels like there's a lot of women in the, um, like the leadership roles um, of that kind of organization. But then, you know, the the loggers and the landowners themselves it's very male though you know historically the the landowners it's a couple right it's, it's, it's the husband and wife though the woman is often behind the scenes I mean I just remember this doesn't happen so much anymore but you go to the tree farm tours and you everybody introduces themselves and the man says you know, I'm so-and-so, this is my wife, if if she's mentioned at all, you know, and she's standing there smiling. Uh, but that, that doesn't happen so much anymore. And I think there's more recognition um, of the partnerships that are important for the for the family forest to survive. Um, um, but yeah, um, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel awkward to be a woman in the world. Um, the bigger thing, and I don't know if we want to discuss, but so I, in, in Portland, I was teaching at, at Park Rose, um, which is a, a section of Portland that um, has a lot of immigrants. And so there's like 50 different languages spoken in the school district and, you know, all different hues of, of skin. And it's so um, vibrant and diverse. And the tree farm world is white. Um, the ownership world is white. The worker bee world is not. Um, a lot of the tree planting crews and increasingly the logging crews are um, Hispanic. But that that's a bit of a shock to be in. The, and it's, it's also an older crowd, right? The tree, the family forest owners are are you know my age and up, um, and that's that's actually a big issue um, with. Um, so when succession, when tree farms, um, when somebody passes away, that's when there's a huge danger of it passing out of the family forest land into development. 
and you know, like we've been talking about, development is, I mean, it's worse than fire, right? I mean, talk about resiliency. It's gone. You're, you're, you're treated, it's never coming back. I mean, if a fire burns down a forest, it will come back. But if <laughs> the development gets yeah, it, that, that's it. It's the Kent Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I know, I almost drove down nine is that yeah. I don't, yeah and I thought you know what I just don't want to see the development I don't want to see it no. so yeah um so I think we I said we we just have to protect um the family forests um and support them as much as possible so that they the the, the heirs don't feel the need to sell yeah yeah yeah. How do you support a family forest? Like, yeah. I, I don't necessarily go out and buy my own oh. wood. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, one of the big problems um, is the regulations. Um, stream buffers are a huge one. Um, That's a big ag topic, too, yes. especially in the Skagit Valley with right. the well, salmon so, habitat. Yeah. Right, right. And because family forests are closer to the the where the streams are wide, <laughs> right? We, you know, we are disproportionately affected by buffers. And also because a lot of us own, you know, 20, 100 to 300 acres, when half of your land is taken out with a buffer, you're, yeah. in, you're in big trouble. It's um, surprising to me. Yeah, I thought 10 foot, 15 foot buffer, no big deal. But when you really look, especially in the Skagit Valley where there's such a limited ag base, right? it takes a lot of land out well, of production. Well, I think ours are, I think they're... I'm going to get this wrong, too. 150 foot oh, okay. buffers. I mean, they're huge. They're really big. Okay. Um, and also, the science behind it is not that clear, right? It, it I mean, how much um, cooler is a stream without its trees for 10 years? It, it's not that, it's, it's not discernible, as from my understanding. Um, and so I think that it get all, the spotted owl, salmon, all of that gets, used to not don't cut another tree like let's let's you know um instead of really looking at the science behind it yeah. um so that that's that's one thing um i guess yeah with forestry though i mean it's with agriculture you're you can't cultivate up to the stream but that's an annual right every, but with so you're there you're saying that you can't cut trees that are within 150 right feet of the oh, okay. ever right ever. Okay. right yeah yeah, and so especially like if you've got an alder stand there, they're just going to fall into the stream. Right. It, it, yeah, which, yeah, I, I don't know the science behind it. I should. I listen to lots and lots of conversations about it, but I don't. It's not one that I've delved into deeply. Yeah. Um, I just, my understanding is that um, there could be some very careful management along the streams um, that would actually be better for the streams. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a blanket policy instead of, you know, the scalpel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, it's making me think, so in your book, you know, you do say that you kind of tried to do history, you looked at the history of your family's land, mm -hmm. and it was originally uh, land that was owned, managed by the Cowlitz tribe. Mm -hmm. What did you learn in that process of sort of looking backwards in terms of not just forest management, but sort of, uh, relationality to the land. Yeah. It you know the Kalitz tribe isn't <laughs> there's not a ton out there, right? I mean, it's a very it's a small tribe. It's not a tribe that ever had a treaty. 
and therefore wasn't recognized as a um, federated tribe until really recently. Um, so, you know, you can find some Hudson Bay Company journal entries about the tribe. The Catholic Church has a little bit, um, but there's just not a whole lot of written record. Um, and um, But the story that I talk about in my book that fascinated me is about a, a woman named Tasimuth, and she was the um, daughter of Chief Skaniwa, who was um, one of the main chiefs of the Kalos tribe in the 1830s. And she was uh, presented as a bride to um, Simon Plamondon, who was supposedly the first white man to paddle up the Cowlitz River from Fort Vancouver. Um, and so because she married him, she's in the history mm. books, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we have no nothing written from her words, um, but written about her. Um, and I think one of the big things that, so, in, you know, I had imagined in my head that um, she was living in one of the villages where Toledo, Washington is now. There were two Cowlitz villages and, you know, I had her romantically picking berries and, you know, cooking salmon and cedar baskets and things. But she went with uh, Simon Plamondon to the forts. I mean, she traveled up and down um what we now see in the I-5 corridor with him. Yeah. And so I just, that is so fascinating. I want to know what was she was thinking, you know, and how, what just, I mean, her world was in such flux. Mm-hmm. Um, and she died, she had four children with him and she died. It's not clear because nobody wrote it down in one of the forts. Um, so, but yeah, I don't, you know, the 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 Cowlitz tribe's housing was cedar, cedar plank lodges, um, and they used cedar for clothing and baskets and everything. Hmm. I don't know what they thought of the Douglas fir, or, you know, and I mean, what I I know that they um, they burned to have prairies so they could have berries and um, wildlife. I mean, no. Hardly any animal wants to live in the deep, dark forest, right? They need, they need some sunlight. So I think the, the forest, um, you know, wasn't a place that uh, was used a ton, right? I mean, that they, the trees were so massive, and um, I think it, it was hard to get them down. Mm. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I I often wonder, you know, let let you know if the native tribes like the Cowlitz or any anywhere that you know were the tribes that lived among these huge big trees, if they had figured out how to cut them down with a chainsaw, <laughs> you know, how would they have done it, right? Would they have just, you know, kept going like we did, or would they have thought, oh, this isn't sustainable, we can't we can't keep doing this. Hmm. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the technology there is an interesting question. I never thought about that. Like, yeah, when, when did when were chainsaws invented? <laughs> right. Well, right. Or even the cross-cut saw, right? Yeah. I mean, before, I yeah, mean, you see those we brought the Kinsey steel. Photos. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, the West, the, the European Americans brought the steel and, that, and tribes adopted the steel big time. 
but you know not fast enough to keep themselves from being overrun yeah yeah it's interesting. You know, I'm thinking about agriculture again. I, I, I'm really interested in these parallels because forestry is a form of agriculture. Yes. Um, but I always I'm in like vegetable land. Right. So that's yeah. where my mind goes, you know, with um, with sustainable or restorative farming ideals. There's this expectation that we're moving towards a localized food system or having less food miles and knowing where your food was grown, knowing your farmer in timber forestry industries it seems like there's always going to be a need for exportation right like you're not trying to grow trees that are only used in washington and i'm just curious about that because i know in your book you kind of follow you try to follow i a do tree. yeah right no and I, I i i would like us to have more of a story along with our trees you know it's hard because like even let's say we log five acres our trees are going to so many different places, like maybe, you know, seven different mills. And then within that mill, you know, so keeping track is really difficult. Mm -hmm. Even though once a, a tree goes to a mill, it gets a bar tag, a, a tag, um, barcode tag. So you can track it that way. But even that, I mean, who's, I don't know, it's, it's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I would love it if every one of our trees stayed local and I could go see where it ended up, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's 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 easy to be romantic about that, um, but there, yeah, I, I I say in my book, you know, actually, can I see that yeah. for a second? At the very end, actually, it's when I'm in the sawmill in Japan, and I'm just kind of overwhelmed. I'll read a bit. And this mill is huge. And um, I say, in the cavernous concrete and steel buildings, I watch the logs being sliced and diced, rolled along conveyor belts, stacked, tested for strength and moisture, dipped in an antibacterial solution, sanded and glued. The whine of saws and the sucking sound of hydraulic pumps hurts my ears. The sharp metal flaying the flesh of the trees hurts my heart. Concrete covers the earth green steel blocks the sky industrial fans blow hot air and suck sawdust workers operate machinery rarely touching the wood i can find beauty in logging in slash burning in stumps but this leaves me cold i want to go back to the days of hand-hewn boards but then i feel silly like a disconnected urbanite wanting small batch artisan artisanal single-sourced products that by their non-industrial origin are only available to people with wealth. And mm. that's a big problem, right? I mean, yeah. we want all these things, but who can afford them if you do it that way? I do think we all need to pay more for our food. Um, and we also should expect our two by fours to cost more right? if we want to be more gentle on the land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I keep going back to you know. I I grew up um, like I graduated from high school in the '90s, and I think 1999 was the big World Trade Organization protest in Seattle. Mm. You know, and then globalization was this evil word that has been in and out of my academic life and and just my life in farming. But there's reasons, right, that mm -hmm. we've 
globalized right. and there's efficiencies that come with right. that. Um, and I don't know right now how much of the world's timber is still coming from the Northwest, but yeah, I wonder how, how do we acknowledge that and accept that maybe that is what's keeping forestry and farming alive. I know a lot of our potato farmers mm. in the Skagit Valley, you know, sell their potatoes to Russia and mm. China. And in, in return, we still have a very picturesque landscape in right. that part of the world. Uh, and so I, I don't know, I, I guess I don't want to be too precious about it. Right. But also, you know, acknowledging that that globalization is a part of climate change and some of these other mm. issues that are mm-hmm. affecting our, directly affecting the land. Right. No, I think, you know, uh, not hiding any of it is good. Like, let's find out. Let's, it's it's interesting to know how that potato gets from the Skagit Valley to, to Russia. <laughs> Who touches it? I mean, I really want to know, you know. Um, and if we can um, bring to light all of the different steps and all of the effects on all of the people who um, are in the process, then and we can know about it, then we can decide um, if we want to keep it that way or if there is a better human way or a better way for the earth. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That is a great question. I am um, <laughs> getting cl- close here. I'm, I'm, I feel like I could keep talking yeah. to you and you yeah. don't have a clock or anything, so I'm going <laughs> to... No, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I don't, I'm not in a hurry. No, I, I, what I want to ask, um, before mm. I kind of ask a final question, too, is just going back to your book, um, this is a great piece of nature writing mm. or would you categorize this as nature writing i would love to i'm not say i want the audubon society to want it too but yeah like there there was a audubon society has a uh every um winter in portland they have a you know local artist and local book signing thing and osu press submitted my book for that but they didn't invite me um, so I, yeah, no, I, I think I'm a nature writer. I think I'm a nature lover, but we cut down trees and that's hard for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you working on any new projects or I know you're writing some poetry too? Yes. And I'm, I'm writing, um, about my mom's life. Um, it's still, I want it still to connect to the farm. Um, but yeah, I'm not quite sure how I'm, how that's happening, but yeah. 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 And I have one more question mm. before my last question, but I know you talk a lot about your relationship with your family, especially mm. your father um, on the land. And uh, one part that I really liked was that your family has full moon uh, gatherings yes. on the farm yeah. where you continue to do that. Yeah. And so just curious about just family rituals or things that have come out of managing a forest together. Right. Um. We do rain dances, try to get the rain to come. <laughs> uh, um, that was funny. My, my, the same friends that came from Portland to, and saw the city of sticks, the last time they were there, it rained. And the two-year-old needed to undress completely and go out on the deck and dance. And I was like, <laughs> and my dad used to do that. I know he hasn't done that in a while. But, um, yeah, and we just we invite people, right? I mean, we just have people out all the time. Um, and share share the land. Um, we just had a big. My dad turned ninety this year, and we had about ninety people um, come to the farm. Um, and we just had um, our local rep, um, Marie Glusenkamp Perez, um, who we're very excited about. She just came to the to the farm. She's a U.S. rep for the national government. Oh, great. Um, so yeah, I think, and we just had a bunch of teachers come. Um, 
So, yeah, we haven't done the, you know, it's funny. Our trees have gotten too big to see the moon rise right now, where the, where the moon rises. <laughs> um, we, we need to do a moon rising party. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Maybe with the, some of those fancy tree climbing. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did go out and watch the... The Pleiades? What the mm, when the, the meteor? The, yeah. yeah, the shooting stars. Yeah, that was fun. We oh, laid down in the field and watched. Yeah, neat. Well, um, kind of my two guiding questions for this podcast are: How do we care for ourselves and each other, and how do we nurture the earth? Mm -hmm. And I'm just interested in those questions individually and how they overlap. And so I'm yes. just offering them to you if you have anything you want to say to respond to those. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think of a phrase that my dad says. He says, we nurture the land and it nurtures us. Um, and he talks about, I mean, he, he still goes out every day to do something, whatever it is. Um, and he says, he comes back and he says, I got my green infusion today. Um, and, and he talks about forest bathing. I mean, he really, and I, I feel it too. I mean, when you spend time out in the trees, you know, helping them, um, they're helping you. Uh, and I think all of us should participate somehow in the, you know, plant a, a, a tomato in your backyard. I mean, do something that... Um, so that you can just get a glimpse of how things come to you, whether it's food or um, building supplies or clothing or whatever. Um, so, because it, it participating in the process is nurturing to the human soul. Thank you for listening to her deepest ecologies, the podcast. For more information on our guest please visit the Substack page for photos, complete bios, links mentioned in our conversation, and more. These interviews were recorded at Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle, Washington. Thanks to sound engineer Aisha. All episodes were edited at my farm, Harmony Fields. <laughs>